All right. So we are in Revelation chapter 6 this morning. If this is your first time, this is uh, week 11 of a series in the book of Revelation. And um, just so you know, this is the point where things get a little hairy. Okay? Um, up until now, the first basically five chapters, there's very little to really argue about. I mean, there's a few little minor points to argue about, but, but every, everybody kind of gets along in the first five chapters, okay? Um, but there'll be dangerous waters ahead, all right? Um, at chapter six, we, you know, different groups sort of give each other a salute and say, I'll see you in chapter 20, all right? That's kind of how that goes, all right? So, so I'm going to do a little bit of review this morning about that would give you some foundation for why I'm going where I'm going, okay? And I'm hoping you'll go with me, all right? Um, but I also just want to kind of just reiterate, uh, you're free to, to approach this book however you want to approach it. If you want to be wrong, you can be wrong. <laughs> if you, it's a free country, all right? In heaven, everything will be clarified, and you'll realize how right I really was, all right? Uh, I'm kidding, sort of, all right? Um, but really, it's, there's freedom, okay? Um, my main thing is that you have reasons, okay, that you have, you have thought through your presuppositions and, your, and you're not just re regurgitating something someone else told you, okay? Um, that's why I'm taking so much time over and over again to kind of tell you the foundations of how I'm approaching the book so you understand why, why I'm getting where I'm going, okay? Um, so disagree, just have reasons, all right? Okay, so there's two, really two big issues. I'm going to give you three, but there's really just two um, that you need to decide before you really interpret the book of Revelation. We have encountered them already, in, but, but the consequences of those assumptions <laughs> haven't been particularly big, but they get bigger now in the chapter 6, all right? Um, the first one is, the first issue is, is this book symbolic or literal? I've been telling you it's all symbolic, okay? That's, how, that's where I'm going, that everything represents something. Everything means something, not literally like, like if I say I literally flew here. What does that really mean, right? Does that mean I sprouted wings and flew? Well, you kind of know I don't mean that, right? You mean I came here really fast, right? And that's what we mean when we say literal versus, so I'm not saying, when I say I'm not taking it literally, I don't mean I'm not taking it seriously, okay? Literal is not a synonym for serious, okay? It just means that there's symbols all throughout this book that mean something, that represent something else, okay? Um, issue number two is what is the structure? And that's the real controversial bit, okay? I'm arguing for the recapitulation theory, which is just a fancy word for saying repeating or circulating, okay? But it's a repeating that doesn't, isn't a perfect repetition. The analogy I've given you is from a great teacher named Sam Storms who came up with this. It's not original to me. Because it's like if you go to a football game and you have multiple cameras all over the field. Some are way up high with a big wide-angle lens. One's like really close. One's maybe at the end zone, one's on the other side of the field, and they're all recording the same game from different perspectives, from different vantage points. As you were to watch the game back, 
from different cameras, you would know it was the same game, but you would get a whole different emphasis. If the, if the camera was really close up and just following the quarterback, you'd have one perspective on that game versus a wide angle, okay? And so these chapters 6 through 19 um, are like that. They're repeating, talking about the same period of time from different vantage points, okay? It is not in chronological order, in other words. So we'll read through one section, and then it's like you kind of go back and you talk about the same period of time again from a different perspective, okay? Um, chapter 6 to 19, work this way. We have three sections, okay? Each one has seven judgments. So the way that's in your Bible is you have seven seals, um, you'll have seven trumpets and seven bowls. Each is a different camera angle talking about the same period of time, okay? You'll even see they're grammatically set up the same way, okay? And the last issue, which I think kind of solves itself once you decide on the first two, but that's just my opinion. When is the book of Revelation talking about, which is the one everybody fights over, right? Uh, most people hold the futurist perspective without realizing it because that's what the movies and the books have told you and it's what the when the world does a movie or a book about the apocalypse this is the perspective they usually kind of take okay and that is that everything in these chapters is going to happen in the future in a relatively short period of time right before Jesus comes back okay so it's all future. That's what I mean by futurist. It's all in the future, okay? Um, so all of this is yet to happen, and we're waiting for it to happen, and we're looking for the signs of that. So it takes a very literal, literal approach to these. So we're looking for uh, maybe people that represent, so like this morning, we're going to do the four horsemen, um, the first four seals. And so you're looking for a specific person or event that might represent that horsemen, okay? You look very literal approach, very much in the future. I think that's wrong, okay? That's not my perspective because, well, for a lot of I don't think that's what the text, obviously, if you take the, I just told you a minute ago that I'm recapitulation, right? This is talking about the time between when Jesus came the first time and when he's coming the second time. We're right in the middle of what we're going to read this morning, okay? What often accompanies the futurist perspective is a lot of kind of shoulder shrugging about the book of Revelation because if it's all in the future and I'm going to get sucked out of here right before it all happens, what does it have to do with me? And so we just sort of read the first few chapters because that talks about the church. I can get that, but when we hit chapter 6, I don't even know, what, what, why are we even talking about it? Can't we go to one of the Gospels and just leave this alone, right? That's... And it's very frustrating for a lot of people. I would imagine it's probably why most of you here have never really studied the book. It's because it just seems like it's irrelevant and confusing. Why should I care? In my opinion, it makes much more sense to see the book of Revelation as covering the entire church age from the first coming of Jesus to the first future second coming of Jesus. Each of these three camera angles, the three sections of seven judgments, bring us to the completion of human history where we see three things each time. You'll see this in every section. You'll see the final judgment of unbelievers. You'll see the salvation and vindication of God's people. And you'll see the full manifestation of the kingdom of Christ. That is what we're headed towards. Okay, that's what these chapters are about. 
And these events that you will see, we'll start with the first four this morning, happen repeatedly. They are what's called the commonplaces of human experience. Nothing in here, in my opinion, is foreign to anyone in this room. You have all seen everything that you're going to read. It is a part of your human experience. The, the, the different judgments and the, the calamities, you're not going to be like, oh, that's crazy. You've never seen that before. Right? It's all a part of human history. If you've ever like been outdoors or known anybody or lived at all, you have experienced and seen some of these things. All right? So the bowls at the end indicate a judgment that is less restrained. There is, I think, a movement, a progression, even though we're repeating, over time of intensification. Where when you start at the beginning with the seals, it's a, there's judgments, but it's sort of restrained, and it gets more and more intense as you go along. So we can expect a progression of intensity. Things will, in the world, get worse. Sorry, this is kind of the way it's going to be for a few weeks. That being said, before I read this, remember the context from last week and the week before. What John is going to describe here is happening. Remember the picture he has, the vision he has of heaven and the throne of God, right? There's the throne. It's radiating the glory of God and all these colors coming out. You've got the four creatures standing around the throne, these angelic cherubim and seraphim worshiping God and doing his bidding Right? And then you have the 24 elders around there representing the church in their thrones and their crowns. And they keep, as the cherubim worship God and the thunder and the lightning sounds, the, the elders fall on their feet, throw their crowns at the feet of God and worship. And then beyond that, you just have multitudes of angels as far as the eye can see. Worshiping at the top of their lungs over and over and over again. And what is in the right hand of the Father? It's a scroll with seven seals. And they're going, who's going to open the scroll? And the Lamb, who is also the Lion of Judah, ascends the throne, walks up the steps, takes the scroll, and says, I'll open the scroll. And then he is seated there with the Father on the throne. That's Jesus, right? This is what's in the scroll. So as we read this, you have to... Continue to imagine the sound and the, the scene in which these things are being released. Because each of these four creatures are the ones saying, okay, now this rider. And this, we're going to see these horse that horses that represent the thing. They are the ones releasing it. So as they're shouting and worshiping and the ground is shaking, the elders are on their knees before God with their, their, their crowns cast down. That whole scene we talked about last week and the week before out from that comes these things, okay? So even though it's a little dark, the context is not dark. The purpose and where it's going is not dark, all right? Okay. Long introduction, but it's important. Chapter 6, verse 1. I'm just going to read the whole, whole, for the first eight verses, and then we'll go back, circle back around and talk about it. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals. And I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come. And I looked and behold a white horse. And its rider had a bow 
and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. And when he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. And out came another horse, <coughs> bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the, living, the third living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a black horse, and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. I know you're confused by that. We'll talk about it. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider, rider's name was Death. And Hades followed him, and they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. It's quite a mouthful, isn't it? Tons of symbolism, all right? So let's go back around. We'll talk about each one of these four horsemen. And by the way, we're not talking about, anybody grew up in the 80s with wrestling? The four horsemen? We're not, that's not what we're talking about, all right? We're talking about a vision that John has seen, all right? So, scholars disagree about the first rider, okay? You will hear me say that often. Scholars disagree, all right? And then I'll give you an opinion, all right? Some say it's the gospel conquering unbelief. I think that's quite a reach. Um, it's a pretty thin argument. Many think that the rider is Jesus. It's a better one. It's a better argument. Citing Revelation 19, which we'll get to eventually, week 55 or whatever it is. Because um, there he's riding a white horse. You're probably, that's probably maybe the third most you know, familiar scripture in Revelation to most people is that here he comes on a, on a white horse. Um, that's a good theory. It could be right. Um, but I'm convinced it's not. I don't think this is Jesus. I'm not alone in that. Okay, I'm not pulling my own theory out. All right, but I don't think this is Jesus. I think it's a counterfeit Jesus. The reason for that is there's a, a theme in each of these sections of a counterfeit Christ or an antichrist. Um, and this is part of Satan's strategy. This is what's revealed. One of the themes that's revealed in Revelation is that one of Satan's strategies is to, is to present to us false saviors that appear to be good, that appear to be Christ or the Messiah or your Savior, but in fact are from the pit of hell and are there to manipulate and to twist and to torture and to lead us astray and lead us away from him. I think that's what this is. It doesn't fit the context also. Like why would Jesus be opening a scroll by breaking its seals and when he is one of the seals? It just doesn't make literally... In terms of the literature and the way it's written, it doesn't make any, a lot of sense. Um, all the other seals represents judgments that we'll see as we go along through these sections where the identity of the rider is not important. It's just a symbol. It wouldn't make sense that in this one instance, unlike all the rest, it's Jesus, it's a specific person, um, when the rest are not. Okay? I'm convinced that this is a counterfeit Christ, a false savior, an antichrist that promises that war and violent conquest will save us. The counterfeit Christ is a theme that is repeated often in Revelation, and it begins right here. 
So we have a rider coming out who looks like a hero and says he's got a bow, which is a symbol of war all throughout the scripture. And he says, war and violence is going to bring peace. I'll bring promises, peace, but can't give it and won't give it. Because then we have the next horse coming out, which is the red horse. The red horse and rider remove peace, it says, and bring the sword. It's no longer about the strong conquering the weak. It's about everyone slaying each other. This starts to sound like a description of our age, doesn't it? It's brother against brother, friend against friend, neighbor against neighbor. This is violent chaos. But first you have conquest will make peace. I mean, that's the American way. It's the way of the world, isn't it? And then you have another type of violence, which is brother against brother, friend against friend, a complete loss of peace and absolute chaos. <coughs> then we have the black horse. <coughs> this is that bit about the denarius for a quart of wheat thing, right? I don't know about you, I don't, I don't typically do my grocery shopping with denarius or denarii. It's hard to get your head around that. Basically, a denarius was a day's wage. Okay, this is an exorbitant price for a tiny amount of wheat. Okay? This indicates that those resources were quite scarce and therefore incredibly valuable. So there's poverty. There's a shortage of food supply. At the same time, oil and wine are protected. What's oil and wine? Oil and wine is what the wealthy use. So the oil and the wine is protected and is not scarce. So you have the wealthy who are, have an abundance of resources and you have the poor paying exorbitant prices for a tiny little bit of food. They cannot feed their families and keep food on the table. Oil and wine are luxury items. So the poor can't put food on the table while the wealthy have an abundance of luxury. This is the height of injustice which explains the set of scales in the rider's hands. Justice has been distorted. And how many places in the world can you see this plain as day? Where up on a hill you have a mansion, and just on the other side of the street or on the other side of town, there's abject poverty. It's all over the world. Just go to Ash County, right? We're not that far. Just go to Ash County and you'll see poverty right up and up on the top of the mountain will be some rich guy's McMansion and poverty elsewhere. This is what he's describing. This is not unfamiliar to us. And then lastly, we have the pale horse. The pale horse or the white horse and rider represents death by natural means, famine, disease, animals, beasts, it says. Note here that the pale horse is allowed to take a fourth of the population as we go through the, the seals and then the trumpets and then the bowls. We'll see the same idea repeated, but each time it's more people. First it's a fourth, then it's, I think, three-fourths, and then it's everybody. Okay, So there's an escalation happening in these three sections. How many times have we seen in the news these natural disasters? And you wonder, what's going on here? Why is this happening? 
I think the hardest question about these verses and this whole section is the, if we go back to the original vision that John has, where is this scroll coming from? It's coming from the hand of the Father. And everybody, as they're seeing these horses ride, right, they are still worshiping and rejoicing and going, yay, God. But then when you go, okay, what's in the scroll? You're all excited, right? Yay, he's opening the scroll. And out comes like calamity, violence, chaos, death, destruction. And the question, I think, if you're willing to ask it, which I am, and I hope you are, which is how can we see these horrific events as coming from the hand of God and still think that God is good? Just let that sit there for a second. I mean, you've all experienced this in your own life. Have you, if you've been willing, maybe in a really rough moment, you've asked that question. As I hope you have. How, okay, how can God be in control here? How is it that he can be sovereign? And then out of that sovereign hand comes something really painful. It's the question of evil, and it's the one that atheists always, always, always ask. How can you call that good? He's either, he either must be, how can God be good, powerful, and in control? That's always the question. Is he all three? If he's all three, that seems impossible. It's a paradox. Maybe he's powerful, so he can do whatever he wants. He can do anything. And maybe he's sovereign, but if that's true and bad things happen, then he can't be good. Right? Or maybe he's good, and he's sovereign, like he wants to do something, but and he's trying to do something, but he just can't. He's not powerful. Or maybe he's powerful and good, but he just is unconcerned. This is the, the paradox of God. And there's not an easy answer, to be honest with you. But I'll give you some that will help you. One, God's judgment is designed to bring repentance. The lack of repentance does not testify against God, but against mankind, okay? This is a story when we talk about the Old Testament, this is a story we see repeated over and over again, isn't it? Of, of God's people, the Israelites, forgetting God, rebelling against God, ceasing to worship God, starting to worship other things. And what does God do? He says, hey, stop it. They don't stop it. And so what does he do next? He brings judgment. He allows some other nation to come in and harass them, or he allows a famine, or he something. He allows bad things to happen, and eventually they go, oh, we should repent, and they repent, and the bad things stop. This is the cycle over and over and over again. Well, this is what's happening here. So when Jesus comes, Jesus says, now everybody, including Gentiles, get to have this same relationship with me. That's a two-edged sword. Grace is a two-edged sword. The idea that the gospel jumped the borders of Israel is a two-edged sword. It's a great blessing, meaning the gospel, we can have a relationship with God, not just ethnically as Jews, but we can have a relationship with God just through Jesus. But it also means that everybody's going to have to repent. You're all under the thumb. That's part of what this means. Secondly, God is never wrong to take a life. You have to establish this in your worldview. 
it's a foundation stone that you got to that God is never, ever, 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 ever wrong to take a life. He's the creator, that's why. He fashioned each one of you from his hand. Again, that's a sweet thing to talk about when someone gets pregnant. He fashioned me into my, my, my mother's womb. But that also means he can do whatever he wants with the thing that he fashioned. He can make it for whatever purpose he wants to make it for. Okay? This, he is always right in what he does with his creation. It's not that you decide that he's right based on what he did. It's that if he does it, he's right. <laughs> okay? That is a humble human perspective. If God does it, he's right. Period. Most of the indignation at God's wrath, I believe, is rooted in a diminished view of his holiness. What I mean by that is when we say things like God is good or God is right or what, you know, we, it's a comparative word, isn't it? Or you say, I'm a good person. I'm a good person. Well, what do you mean? Just ask a follow-up question to yourself. What do you mean by that? What does it mean to be good? How do you know? Well, because I compared myself to someone else who is not a good person, therefore, vis-a-vis, blah, 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 I am a good person, right? And you just compare. It's a comparative word. There's no way to know what good is without comparing it to someone. And so typically we go, well, I've never murdered anyone. Well, that's a low bar of goodness, but okay. (laughs) But what happens when you compare yourself to God? And you begin to understand what holiness is. Holiness is not just not making a mistake. It's far more than that. It's total perfection. Intentional, constant, active perfection. It is the kind of perfection that is so perfect and so radiant that it seeks to make everything else perfect. So when you get around a holy God... He's not just going to sit over here and be holy and say, you don't be holy, it's fine, I'll cut you some slack. His holiness is like radiant, like the, the, the rainbow coming out of the throne. It goes out into the world and seeks to make all of it holy. This is what God, what it means. He's never, not just made a mistake, but it is part of who he is. That there is no shadow of sin or unrighteousness or falsehood in him at all. You don't, none of us know what that is because you've never seen it or experienced it. And so now you take your quote-unquote goodness and you compare that and you just put that next to the holiness, radiant, glorious holiness of God. And you go, oh, I guess I'm not, I'm not that good, (laughs) right? I think this is why many people, most people struggle with the idea of hell, of God sending someone to hell. It seems unfair. And the reason you think it's unfair is because you have diminished the seriousness of your sin and you have diminished the holiness of God. You have tried to drag him down into your humanity and make him like your neighbor or the police officer in town or the governor or the judge in the court. It's not fair because I'm a good person. 
what I did doesn't deserve that. But when you compare your sin to the great holiness of God, all of a sudden it just seems insane. And, well, yeah, we all deserve hell. In fact, I would say the fact that any of us are breathing and, and that the world's allowed to even view another sunset that God made. The fact that, that people who re, are in rebellion against God are allowed to see a sunrise every day and enjoy his creation and then not worship him for it and instead go, wow, that's nice. Off I go to do my thing, my really good thing, whatever that is. It's a miracle and it's a mercy from the hand of God that we even breathe at all. say this is the perspective that heaven has on God's will and this is the perspective that you will have when you see him clearly is that if God does it it's not only good and right but it's glorious much of God's judgment against mankind is simply removing restraint He lets us have what we want, which ultimately brings our own destruction. I think this is a weaker point, but it's worth saying. Because it's not always true. Some, you know, God directly judges. Okay? So we can't, don't read this as me letting God off the hook, because I'm not. I feel no need to let God off the hook. All right? However, if you read like Romans 1, judgment quite often looks more like God saying, fine, have it your way. Releasing restraint. There is a restraint he has through the Holy Spirit on the hearts of mankind in the world. There is a reason why we are not just all slaying each other constantly. And when he removes restraint, you ever notice like the power goes out for long enough, people start to lose their mind? Like when you see people rioting after a hurricane, and kicking in businesses and stealing 55-inch TVs when there's no power, beating up people, do not say to yourself, it's just because they're afraid. No, this is who people really are. This is who we are as human beings. And when you remove the restraint of law, of police officers, of electricity that provides light so people can't do things in the dark anymore. When you remove the threat of consequences and embarrassment and shame, you take that away, you see what people are really are inside. And what we are is this. We kill each other. We beat each other. We steal. We covet. We do these things. All right? And then we shake our fist at God. We can't believe he did this to us. It's horrible. So in the final analysis, we must keep boundaries in our thinking clear, okay? Think of it like two ditches on the side of the road. Don't go in the ditches. One, God does not do evil. He's sovereign over all things, and he never needs you to let him off the hook for anything. That's the other ditch. Just stay out of the ditches, right? And there's a lot of bouncing around you do in between. When things, like real things happen, and you're trying to understand why it happened, stay out of the ditches. Okay? 
Um, most of the time, you and I don't know exactly why something happened, whether it's in your life or your family's life or your neighbor's life or in the world. Why did Katrina happen? I don't know. But stay out of the ditches. Okay? One thing I know for sure is that it is not surprising. It is not surprising, and it somehow is in the scroll that God is really, it is a part of God's plan to bring to the closing human history, to usher in the kingdom of God, to bring Jesus in, and for all this to get wrapped up and finished up. It's part of our way home. And to not say that is to deny the script, what the scripture says. So there's a big error that I've encountered many times that kind of comes out of this, these scriptures, which is some will teach that these verses demonstrate that there's no point in trying to alleviate suffering in the world. It's God's will. I'll say that's another ditch you can go into. In fact, some will use these verses to teach that it's really wrong to do that. There's a kind of a push. You know, for a little while in American churches at least, there's this big... I think a generally good drive for social justice, that the church would go and alleviate suffering in the world, right, to help feed the poor and do these, all these good things in the world. That's, that's been there for a long time, but in the last probably 30, 40 years, it's been a big push, and there's a reaction against that from, well, I won't say from who, just from a lot of people. That says, what are you doing? That's wrong. Don't do that. This is part of God's will. He's just cracking open another seal, brother. Why are you doing that? I think that's just abominably terrible. It's such, it's just really, really, it's, it's demonic. This position requires you to ignore the enormous themes in the rest of the scriptures and misunderstands the book of Revelation all at one time. Alleviating suffering should be a demonstration of the gospel. What is the gospel? That God will have mercy on you. You do not have to be under his judgment. Repent, right? Working for human flourishing in the world becomes a living parable of how Jesus, through his body, that's us, the church, is a shield from the deserved wrath of God. So we say, look, this should not be surprising. This calamity, this destruction should not be surprising. It's what sin does. Repent and come into the shelter. Feeding the poor can be a physical demonstration of the gospel of grace. So think for a minute about just just human history. Stalin. Was it 60 million, I think, that he killed? Pol Pot, Hitler, Mao civil wars, world wars, you had two of those, all the despots in Africa, Muslim and Christian holy wars, genocide, worldwide abortions, it's millions of babies we've killed in this country by itself, widespread famine, bubonic plague, smallpox, AIDS, starvation in places Uh, mere miles from exotic mansions like Jamaica. Jamaica is a weird place. 
floods, tsunamis, hurricanes, and much, much more. It's all very sad, very dark stuff. So what's our hope? Do we just kind of shrug our shoulders and go, oh, well, this is how it's going to be. Another seal got cracked open. Our hope is in the simple fact that this scroll belongs to our God. If you think about dis- discipline alone, how you receive discipline depends entirely on your relationship with the one giving it to you. So if my kids know I'm their daddy and I love them, that when I discipline them, they're going to receive that, even if it's not done well, even if my parental skills are lacking, If they know they have a relationship with me, they know this is an expression, my daddy's good to me. And this is somehow an expression of what love is, right? And so if we look at all of these things and we disconnect it from the hand of God and say, God must not be in charge of this, then you get the wrong lesson. (laughs) But when you see that somehow these things come from the hand of God, when you stay out of the ditches, then you can begin to rejoice because you know this is going somewhere, right? This is going somewhere with purpose. This is going somewhere good, which is the culmination of everything that Jesus started when he came. This is coming to rescue. This is coming to the kingdom of God being inaugurated fully into the earth. We get to see everything made right. We get to see everything corrected this is going somewhere this is not random events this is just not this is just not the it's not a political problem that can be solved it's not an environmental problem that can be solved like that this is jesus working history towards his end period and you don't have to explain how you don't have to because you can't god makes no attempt to explain it beyond saying, this is from my hands, so rejoice. The lion of the, tri- the tribe of Judah has ascended the throne and is now executing the will of the Father. He is drawing his elect into the sheepfold. Even the calamity of this life, we can look at these dark events and rejoice that he is drawing near. It is the sound of him drawing near. Practically speaking, it's interesting that we're headed into an election year. It's probably going to get pretty intense. I'm just going to get off Facebook for a while once that starts up. Just staying away. Not because I'm afraid of what I'll say. I'm just afraid of what other people will say. The media is going to try to tell you that everything hinges on this election. They do this every time. There's never been an election more important than this one. Well, man, things have really escalated. Because every year it's always the most important. Every eight years or four years. They'll tell you how high the stakes are. The sky is always falling. They'll tell you that this candidate can really open the scroll. Just wait and see. Wars, pestilence, famine, murder, etc. is all going to continue to escalate over time. The world will tell you that the causes are anything but humanity's refusal to repent and acknowledge its creator. It's everything but that. Don't buy what the world is selling you on either front. Don't buy it. 
you'll be so much more at peace. It's not that you deny that there are problems. And it's not that you say, I'm not going to go help. I'm not going to try to alleviate suffering. But your motivation for doing it is not to fix the world, because you can't. The only thing that can fix the world is Jesus. Your motivation is, I want to go and demonstrate the mercy of God in the midst of this, yet, but yet another horse riding through my country. I'm going to go demonstrate what it looks like to be the hand of mercy in that. Because I can't fix it. But we'll fix it as repentance. So don't buy what the world is selling you. In this election cycle, please don't get sucked into it. When your soul gets all stirred up and you start going, oh, they're going to elect the wrong guy. Whoa. The guy I thought could open the scroll isn't going to get elected. America is not the kingdom of God. They are not the same thing. I'm going to keep telling you that over the next year. America does not equal the kingdom of God. They are not on the same path. They are not, on the, they are not parallel routes to the same place. One is one thing. One is another. And one day, America will no longer exist. I don't know when that will be. But it will happen when Jesus, at least when Jesus touches down, at least, maybe before then, but at least when Jesus' toe touches the ground, all that's over. Put your hope in something else. Don't be a fool. Hear that. Do not be a fool and believe that lie. Because I just told you not to. <laughs> all right. And listen, the next time a calamity happens, the same thing is true. Mass shootings, all this stuff. I'm not saying don't be concerned. I'm not saying don't be aloof. I'm not saying don't weep. Weep over it. Mourn over it. But you mourn because you know what it means. Jesus is calling his people to repent. Seek to demonstrate the mercy of God in the world. Alleviate suffering when you can, but never fall under the illusion that any of it is in your hands, because it's not. Amen? All right, let's stand up and pray, and we'll worship together.